Welcome back to the Lancaster School District Podcast School Buzz. Um, I'm your host, Rebecca Cooksey, and we have a very um, timely topic today. I'm talking with Chris Jones from Palmdale School District, and we're talking about the coronavirus, which I'm sure everybody's talking about, and how school districts are getting prepared with technology. So Chris, give me a, a bio and tell me what you do in Palmdale. I am the coordinator of educational technology for the Palmdale School District, and I've been here for about five years now. And prior to that, I worked for about 14 years with the LA County Office of Education, uh, providing technical help and technological assistance and professional development and lots of other titles while I was there. And then I was a classroom teacher for about 14 years, mostly at the Wilsona School District in the east part of the Los Angeles County. Great. And um, we've known each other for a long time. I know when, when this coronavirus started to kind of pop up with us, we were on the site, which is California. What does site stand for? Uh, <laughs> um, California. Oh, funny that you say that. Um, <laughs> and it used to be SEPA, which we knew really well, yes, right? Yes, we did, yes. And <laughs> informational technology educators, I believe. Right. Um, California IT and education. There, there we go. Have it. <laughs> we got it. Um, and we're part of that group where there's messages that go across the state on, you know, different things in technology that we have to be concerned at. And I know that we... We have a regional group, and we've kind of talked with Hart School District and Westside and the High School District, but this has been a topic that's been in that chat room kind of continuously of how people are getting prepared for this just in case there might be school closures. Not that we think that there's going to be or they're imminent, but we do have to have a a plan for that. So I know in California, um, there are 159 cases as of today, and in LA County, there are 27, which that number seems to be growing. Seattle just announced that they're closing their schools for 14 days, and um, the Basketball Association has said they're going to play games, but no guests, no people in the audience for those games. So that'll be a big change for that program. Even though there are no reported cases in the Antelope Valley, what are you guys doing to prepare your district for the maybe the eventuality of going online? So first of all, we're currently business as usual. And that makes sense because we're at what they consider level one, which means we don't have any infections here in the district. It's continuing mostly business as usual, although not not entirely because we are certainly paying attention to more hygiene-oriented events, which means, you know, we're encouraging kids to wash their hands, of course, and not just kids, but staff as well, and to wash thoroughly with soap and water, and we provide more hand sanitizers, and we've even encouraged them to clean some of their electronic devices just so we can make sure that we stop the spread of virus and germs. That's probably one of the best defenses we have. So preparing to go online, it's a little bit tricky right now. Right. Because the state of California has not really provided us with good guidelines for this. And I can honestly say that we are in an unprecedented area. And, and, and rightly so. I mean, uh, big changes happen usually because we're pushed to change, right? Not because we want to change. So That's correct. I think that what's going to happen from this is we are going to see a big shift and we are going to see more thought and more preparedness given to this idea of uh, online or distance education. So you might have heard uh, several universities have been closing 
and they are going to continue. And of course, it's right around their spring break time. So they're extending their spring break time, but then they're going to continue their online learning or continue with online learning even after their spring breaks. So universities are uniquely prepared, I think, to take their content online. A lot of the professors have already started putting their content up into what we call LMS, which is a learning management system, so that students can have resources both digitally and uh, in it while they're in the classroom. And I think that's and, a, a, a real easy change for a university because almost every student there has technology. And I think a lot of um, universities have already done things online. I know I teach for a university as an adjunct and everything I do is online. So I think it's kind of an easier switch for universities compared to like elementary schools. I would agree with that and even high schools. And so, you know, our um, form of education really is based on that face-to-face -face and seat time. Right. And so making that adjustment is really going to be difficult. But one of the things we've already talked about in our district is how quickly we'd be able to get our Chromebook fleet out into the hands of our students. So we're already prepared. We have our Follett uh, Destiny system, which is our library checkout system. We're already prepared to have the devices quickly scanned and out into the hands of students in a very short period of time. So uh, number one thing we feel very prepared to do is to get technology into the hands of students very quickly. Number two, we have about 100 Kajit devices in the district, and those are internet devices that provide internet. And we're already checking those out to go home with students through their libraries. And uh, those devices can go home and provide students with internet access. Now, it's not a lot of internet access. It's about 500 megabytes uh, per day, uh, which isn't a lot, but it is enough for them to, you know, do their homework, for example. Right. Uh, I, they're I not think... able to stream lots of videos or anything on that, but they could, <laughs> could do their homework. We do have 100 of those available. So if we had students who said, great, you gave me a Chromebook, but I don't have any internet at home, we could address up to 100 of those students. If it were more than 100 students, we certainly have to look at other ways to get internet out to those students. We're not quite sure how many students in our district actually do or don't have internet, although we do an annual survey. And according to our annual survey last year, our sixth, seventh, and eighth grade students, 92.8% of them said they had internet services at home. So almost 93% of them said they had internet service at home. That's a, that's a good so, percentage. I would have thought it would have been lower than that. So that's, that's encouraging to think that that many families have internet at home. Exactly. So, so we're thinking, you know, if we had to do our math that, you know, we, we might need to provide internet to more than 100 students if, if that were the case. Uh, you know, based on our numbers of students and how many might or might not have internet. Um, but but we feel pretty prepared uh, in knowing that we could get our technology quickly assembled and out to students. And I think, Chris, I think the, we're, we're, oh, in the, we're in the same position. We have the technology. We have more than enough Chromebooks to give to every single child in our district. And we've got a number of hotspots. We're looking at maybe purchasing some more if we need to go online. It's not the technology that concerns me. And I right. think you might be in the same place where we are. But we have, we have taken the, the stance on technology rollout as if you want to come and learn it, we'll teach you. It hasn't been a everybody must do. And so as we're moving to maybe an emergency situation to get everybody trained and ready to go is just going to be a little bit tough. Yeah, 
That is an excellent point. We do require teachers to come through our Chromebook academies when they first start, either when they're new in the district or if they're just getting new Chromebooks in their classrooms or they've shifted a grade level, whatever the case may be. And we continue to offer those academies. And through the academies, we do introduce them to both Google Classroom and Hapara. Now, Google Classroom, I think everybody knows, is, is that light, sort of an LMS. Um, and uh, Hapara is a little more intense, but does offer similar capability of being able to put content out digitally for students. And so with that, I feel like our teachers, probably a good 75% of them are already doing a hybrid approach anyway. Right. So in other words, they either are already putting content into Google Classroom or Hapara, plus their face-to-face -face teaching. So shifting to an online um, would be a shift, of course, for them, and it would take some work, but I don't think that it would be too difficult for them. I feel about probably the, the last 25%, even though they've been introduced to those tools, have not used them frequently enough to feel comfortable with them. So we might have to really do a quick... Uh, a quick professional development for teachers who who maybe don't feel competent in those areas. And that creates a kind of an interesting little gap there that we can't really guarantee, you know, how teachers are, are going to take that that last step. Right. We I found that mostly our upper grade teachers are very comfortable with it. Um, middle school, I don't see that there's gonna be a problem really at all. And our third through fifth grade, pretty pretty um, um, capable with it. It's our primary teachers that have not taken that huge step, uh, the majority of them, just because it's a lot more face-to-face -face time with students um, and not so much online. And I think that's going to be our struggle is with our primary kids. So um, thinking of that, and I think that's a great point, we've been discussing different options as well that are based on grade level. So we're having some discussions right now that are well, should we only do an online or a distance sort of a coursework for our upper grade students? Should we cut it off at a certain level? Should we not include our, our primary students? Is, is it unrealistic to expect some of our youngest students uh, to interact using the technology when they may not be very familiar with it in any case? So we're, we're having those discussions right now, too. We haven't come to a consensus, but we're certainly looking at it. Sounds like we're having the same discussions uh, that you guys are. Um, have you made any changes in your school district so far to prepare for this, or is it just you're just in the planning stages? We are still in the planning stages, and I'd like to be further along, but we still have some questions, and they go back to the CDE, honestly, because some of the wording from the CDE really doesn't address an event like the one we're having right now. So, for example... <laughs> Some of the language in CDE says that if we exclude um, students from the educational environment, that we're not allowed to collect ADA or attendance for that exclusion. So we don't have any verification if exclusion includes uh, quarantine. So, you know, if we were asking students to stay home because they were maybe um, exposed, is that considered an exclusion? And if it is, then we couldn't uh, recoup the ADA for that student anyway. So I'm not sure if the distance or the online learning would be beneficial at that point. Well, it would be beneficial, I think, for the student, um, but it would not be beneficial for the district. And uh, there's another factor in that, too, which is if schools are closed, and this is wording from the CDE, 
If schools are closed, the district is not allowed to recoup attendance. And so if there's a forced closure, let's say that the, the county came in and forced a closure due to a, an infection, um, then, then the school would not be allowed to ask uh, or to recoup ADA. So while that may not preclude us from doing an online or a distance learning type of alternative, there's really no incentive to the district to do a distance learning because there would be no recoupment of ABA. Right, and I think that's so one of the, the, those things that the state still has not even really thought about. I mean, this is the first time we've kind of been in this situation um, where it might be that you know the state closes down schools and, and it would we still need that money because we're still having to pay staff to them, but they're still doing the work, especially if they're doing an online program. So they'd have to figure out something to do for it. And they're going to have to figure it out pretty quick. Right. And then the other issue for us is also that independent study, typically, uh, you know, it's a contract usually between the parent and, and, and the school district. And the parent has to sign the contract in advance. And some of these situations may be fluid. And we may not want to have the parent come to the school district right. if they've been uh, exposed, you know, to sign a contract. So that gets a little tricky. And then additionally, uh, traditionally with independent study, you've had to keep all of the work that the student produced and you literally had to have that printed out and kept in a file. Right. Yeah. So if the auditors came and, and asked for that, for that, they would have evidence that the student actually did something well on independent study. So if we're talking about a digital or virtual environment, uh, you know, are we then going to be forced to print all of that material out for all of those students and keep it in files? You know, we don't really have any guidelines right now from the state on that. Yeah, I think we're going to be okay with that because we have a virtual school and those children are on independent study contracts and their work is all turned in digitally. So, I mean, we've got it digitally. It's not printed out, but we haven't been audited on those kids. And I think that would be okay since we already have a program at least one of our schools runs that way. I'm a little confused. Yeah, I'm, oh, I'm sorry. We have one as well, but they have a wholly separate curriculum and they check in online and they have a certain number of hours that they have to check in um, either daily or weekly to be considered attending. Yeah, and that's what we have too. They've got to have so many minutes in. I'm a little concerned about, you know, we have a lot of children who um, are on free and reduced lunch. In fact, we feed everybody in our district. And I'm concerned about the food instability for some of these kids. If, if we close schools, that's sometimes the only meals that they get. And I, I know that we're thinking of, well, maybe we'd go to parks or maybe we'd open the school just so they could get a meal. Um, we're not sure about that situation either. Do you guys have any ideas for that? That is a really excellent question. We broached that topic the other day, too. And uh, yeah, and in fact, there is sort of a requirement in place that says that we should we still need to offer food, even if, uh, you know, because students, yes, you're right, some of them, these are the only meals they get every day. Um, so we had questions about that as well and started talking about the same types of things. Should we go to a central location? Uh, I heard, um, uh, this was an interesting one that, that I got thrown around in one of my group's uh, forums that uh, I uh, follow, and they had talked about actually providing food and going to bus stops and uh, providing the food at bus stops. And I could see in a smaller district or where you, uh, where you don't have a lot of busing that that might be a feasible idea. I'm not sure how well that would work for us. We have a lot of buses and a lot of bus stops, but it's an idea 
But but it still brings about the whole idea that people are coming together at right. a location, which is really what we're trying to discourage. So I'm not sure how this is going to work. Yeah, I'm not sure either. It's like you know, maybe we'll hire Uber Eats and have them delivered to the kids. I, I don't know what we're going to do. Um, what are you doing to help teachers kind of move on to online instruction besides what you've already done? Or have you done anything yet? So we haven't reached out to them yet. One of the first things I plan on doing is actually sending out a survey uh, within the next day or two to our teachers and asking them what their comfort level is with some of those tools and if they feel if they had to transition to do more online how they would feel about it um, so that I get a better sense on my side you know how much uh, more PD we might need to provide uh, to people who aren't feeling all that comfortable. And another question that lingers for us is really, um, you know, it's about contract language. Yes. And so, uh, <laughs> you know, this, again, it's, uh, are we saying that they're going to do this as part of their school day? And so we have to look at this, I think, from a couple of different perspectives. If you have a complete closure, but the teachers are required to report because they're not sick, that's one way to look at it. Of course, the expectation would be that they would work their six hours while they were here, or six and six and a quarter, and that would be the expectation. But what if we have a different sort of a scenario where many kids are being asked to self-quarantine uh, because of exposure, and we therefore have maybe 50% or more of absenteeism? So the teacher is still teaching in a face-to-face -face situation with the number of kids who are left there every day. What's the expectation for them to meet with kids online over above what they're doing in the classroom already? And I think that becomes a, a union issue that we definitely have to discuss. I think so, too. I, that's such an unprecedented time, and the way we're going to have to figure this out is, is with our unions to make sure that you know they understand what we need done and um, making sure that we're treating people fairly, because if we're closing schools, it doesn't mean that we're not going to pay people or they're not going to have a paycheck, because I think that's another fear of people. They're thinking, I'm going to be home for two weeks without pay, and, and I can't see that happening. Right. I, but we also have to take into consideration that these closures, if they happen, they might be cyclical. So in other words, we might be closed for a 14-day stretch, and then we might be back at school for several days and then be closed again and be back at school and be closed again, depending on uh, exposures and, and risks to students. So I think we have to, to figure out what we're going to do. That could be a tremendous disruption into the education of the students. Additionally, the state really hasn't said hey, if we're going to give you a closure, if we're going to say you're going to be closed for two weeks, is that going to be a freebie? Are they going to provide a waiver and then go ahead and, and provide the ADA for those days? Or are they going to say make that up over the summer or at another time? So we don't really have any guideline on that right now. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit worried they're going to say make it up during the summer. And we already have a planned summer school. So that, that'll make things a little bit difficult. Um, right. do, we do as well. Do you have any advice for parents that uh, you'd like to give out? So parents, you know, of course you want to do what's best for your kid and you want to make sure that they're in a safe environment and totally understandable, but probably practicing good hygiene is one of the best things you can encourage your kids to do. Now, the good news on this front is that, that there have been, as of this day, and today is March 11th, uh, as of today, there have been no reported deaths for children uh, ages 0 to 10. It's very interesting. Um, uh, the disease has affected very few 
young people in general. And so um, I would say most kids are in the category of, of being very lightly affected by this. It's, it's the older folks that are getting more heavily affected by it, which, of course, is going to have a, a ripple effect in our community. So to parents, what I would say is if your child is presenting any signs or symptoms, make sure they stay away from your older family members or maybe even um, yourself if you have some underlying health conditions. It's important for you to keep uh, your child separated at, to some degree and making sure that your house is taken care of and that you're wiping down those surfaces and uh, maybe even having your child quarantine in their room for, for a period of time until they're not communicable anymore because probably your parents or grandparents or the older people in your family might be the most exposed to that. And I've seen the same research, yeah, that the older generations are the most at risk. And that's great advice. All right, so we did this podcast using Google Hangouts because you can come and um, we're kind of busy. So this is the first time we've done it from a Google Hangout, which is kind of cool since we are trying to limit, you know, six feet of contact between everybody. It's kind of a different way to do it. Uh, I want to give a community shout out to our vendors who are offering support. So we have Nearpod, Microsoft, Google, Classlink. They've given us lots of resources for online learning, and so that's very much appreciated. Our next episode will be on Sora, which is our online library. And you can find this podcast on iHeartRadio, Sprecher, iTunes, and even on our district webpage. So thank you very much, Chris, for uh, being a guest speaker on this. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Rebecca, and look forward to doing this. And I love the idea that we were doing this at a distance. We're practicing what we're preaching here. (laughs) All right. Have a good afternoon. Thank you. Thanks. You do as well.